to get back into the book of Luke. And, and I can tell you, Joe, Chad, and I, we are all excited to get back to, to what's our bread and butter of, of walking through passages of Scripture, long, long passages, the book of Luke. And we've been, been there for a little over a year now. Uh, we just took a short break to go through some, some particularly um, practical teaching on marriage. But today, as we come to this text, I, I want to um, hearken back to a, a story from history or a thought from history um, that I think is particularly appropriate this week as we remember um, those who have lost their lives. One of the things in, in reading history, and particularly history about World War II, that has just haunted me in my mind because I know I'm simply not that brave is the stories of the beach landings that took place. Of course, most famously on D-Day, when the Americans and the British re-invaded Europe. The shores there of France. They landed in crafts that uh, were meant to go right up to the beach, and the front of the craft would drop down, and out would run soldiers with nothing but a gun into an onslaught of German machine gun fire, barbed wire, bombs, mortar shells falling all around. And these men ran. And so many of them were just instantly cut down. And then it happened again slightly later on the shores of the Pacific Islands. Uh, I think of my great uncle who, who landed on both uh, Iwo Jima, Guam, and Guadalcanal. And again, these landed craft would pull up to the beach, drop the front, and they would run headlong into machine gun fire. I don't understand that kind of bravery in the hearts of people. I don't possess it. Those men walked out of those boats knowing their lives were good as dead, particularly the first waves that came in. So few survived. Um, today as we come to this text, Jesus on multiple occasions mentions death as a part of reality. And we as Americans, we don't like to talk that way. We value our lives more than anything else. Jesus in this text confronts that head on. Tells us things like carry our cross. Count your life as dead. Tells us to walk away. Give up all that we possess. We don't think like that today. I don't know that people ever have, but I know we don't today. So we're going to read a text that, that hits hard and confronts us in very much who we are as humans. And today's text is all about what it means to follow Jesus and, and kind of to put this in, in place in the book, and then we're going to read out of Luke chapter 14 today. But to put this into context, the first kind of third of Luke is a picture of who Jesus is. It's Dr. Luke, he was a physician, answering the question, who is Jesus? And he answers that question, Jesus is the Son of God. Come to earth, become a human, and He has come with power and might and hope and joy. So, so that's the first third. The second third, this is where we're at. We're kind of right in the middle of this. The second third is about Jesus' walk to Jerusalem. This, this is the road trip to end all road trips. He, he walks and kind of circumnavigates the country almost, so to speak. He, he, he takes a very indirect route as he's walking to Jerusalem, literally walking to his death. And there are people following him, his disciples, the crowds. And as they are quite literally following Jesus, he's, he's showing them where they're going. He's walking and he's talking and he's teaching. And he's saying, here is how you follow me. It's a word picture. It's a play on words. They're following Jesus. And he says, here's how you follow me. And just before this passage, Jesus has dealt with people who are bitter and angry about Jesus loving and caring and preaching the gospel to those who, who look like sinners. We, we know today we're all sinners. We're all guilty. We're, we've, we've all broken God's law. But these were the people who really looked like it. I mean, they were the really bad ones. 
And Jesus loved them all the same. Then he comes to this passage and, and he's about to come back again to confront and love those who are outside the lost is the word he uses. Joe will speak about that. And y'all know the story of the prodigal son, the, the son who runs away from his father, taking his inheritance, squanders it all, and comes back to the father thinking, maybe I can just get a job. His father embraces him and brings him back. But this passage and what these stories are all about is to confront the heart that puts itself before Christ. The heart that's in each one of us. The heart that truly wants to follow ourselves and not Christ himself. So read with me as we open God's word. Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 35. Listen, Jesus is going to give us five word pictures today, five kind of snapshots of what this life of following Jesus looks like. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25, says this, now great crowds accompanied him and he turned and he said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no other use for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. We get into God's word today. We're again going to see five word pictures. But, but first, I, I, I kind of want to give you a, a thesis statement. So I know... Guys, gals, students, y'all are, are finally done with school. Congratulations. Congratulations to our seniors. I know I saw one of them here this weekend. We're, we're glad you're here. Welcome back, college students. And I am confident that our college students who are in those lovely English classes that everyone hates have been beaten into their heads that you need a thesis statement for anything you write. You need that central course. Here's what I'm going to write about, and I'm sure some of our high schoolers too. Well, Jesus has a thesis statement. It's there in verse 33. It's short, but I think it sums up these five word pictures that he gives. He says this, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. This, this doesn't just mean goods or, or money. Everything. Your security. Your home. Your very life. He who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Um, if you're like me and have been blessed to grow up in church, sometimes those words that we hear of Jesus have kind of lost their punch. They've kind of lost that, that sharpness. Um, I was working out in the garden yard, not garden yard this week, and uh, some of y'all know we, we, have a, we are blessed and I love all my big trees. But one thing I do not love about my big trees, if you go to plant something, you are going to hit big roots. And uh, this week we were, we were planting some, you know, little grassy, fluffy, flowery things. And I was digging. And I mean, I hit this root. It was two inches in diameter right where my wife had picked the uh, um, peony, some, something like that, some flowery thing to go. And... Um, I had to get out, um, I, have, I have a big like Bowie knife that I can use to chop through that because you can get in there, it's a little easier to get in there with an axe. So I dug around it, went chopping, and of course, lo and behold, that root has grown around a rock. 
And so my Bowie knife now has a nice dent in the thing. I think that's kind of what happens to us sometimes. In, in the daily use, in the, in the lifespan. And I would count so grateful that I grew up in hearing the words of Jesus from my childhood. But sometimes that we, we get that little, that edge is lost. The sharpness of Jesus' words are lost. They're, they're still there, but our, our, our ears just don't hear them. And I love this passage today because what we're going to kind of spend our time on is not so much the thesis, because I'm guessing if you've been around Christ uh, and you've been around His words, you've heard this. Yeah, you, you count Christ. Everything else is lost except Christ. That's the passage we read from Paul, kind of rethinking and rephrasing these statements. We know that. But we don't live that way. We, we don't function that way. And if you are new to the claims of Christ, His claims are all encompassing. He wants everything. And yet it's not of your work and source that it comes from. It's, it's this amazing irony, this, this twist that we don't understand. And I, I hope today that you'll see that a little bit in God's Word. So the first word picture today discipleship, and this is in your notes if you'd like to kind of follow along. Keep your Bible open there to Luke chapter 14. We'll, we'll be going back and forth, back and forth, reading these word pictures. But the first one, discipleship or following Christ. That's what, what discipleship means. It means following Christ. Discipleship is hating all in comparison to Jesus. Discipleship is hating all in comparison to Jesus. Let these words sink in as I read verse 26 to you. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Those words are hard. Those words should give us up. Wait, wait, he said, what? I mean, if, if you're awake today, you'd say, wait a minute. I don't think the Bible teaches you to hate your wife. I mean, we kind of did a, you know, a marriage series. That was not you know, sermon number five, hate your wife. Um, you know, when we talk about parenting, it's not hate your kids. It's not hate your mom, hate your dad. This is a word picture, just like the other word pictures in here. And, and just in the same way, as I don't think any of you are literally trying to become salt in order to follow Christ, and no one brought their six-by-six six beam trying to carry your cross. This, this is a word picture. It's a figure of speech. It's a very common figure of speech in Jesus' day. It's, it's hyperbole. It's an exaggeration to make a point. And what Jesus says is, if your other relationships, if your relationship to your parents to your kids, to your wife, if, if anything is stronger than your love for me, you're not actually following me. Jesus demands complete allegiance. Oftentimes in our lives, we, we, we have priorities, and, and I hope you've thought through some of these things and been wise. I mean, even in your job, you have things that are really important that you cannot miss. And then there's other things that you need to get to that, but, but you know, everybody's going to live if you don't. But in our lives, I hope we prioritize our family over our jobs, uh, certainly over our hobbies. I hope we prioritize um, our immediate family, our children, and our spouses above our extended family. But all these things are good. And what Jesus is going for, is he's not looking to be number one on the priority list. He calls for you to make him the entire list. It's not that he's number one in the series of ten. He, he is. And there's nothing else. The comparison of your devotion to Christ to your devotion to anyone else is not actually a comparison. This is the calling of Jesus. That, that you would look like you hate everything else compared to how much you love him. So let me ask this question. What relationships in your life right now are competing? Who tells you what your value is? 
is in society? Who shows you who you are? Who gives you your identity? Who makes you feel complete? For whom are you living? If the answer to that is not Jesus Christ. If Jesus doesn't hold the trump card that the second you read in God's Word, the call to do this, okay, everything else is out. The moment the Spirit pricks your soul, that that man or that lady at work needs to hear the Gospel. And if the flag goes up, well, if, if I do that, you know, it might be difficult. That nagging feeling that someone else pulls your heartstrings. This is the call of Christ. In comparison to Him, you must hate it all. He is the only priority. Everything else works out if He is in the place of Christ. If your boss is in the place of Christ, your spouse is in the place of Christ, if your child rules your home, things are not right. As much as we love our kiddos, we don't live for them. We live for Christ and Christ alone. I'm reminded over the years of friends I've seen seeking a spouse so desperately or, or having found a boyfriend or girlfriend and they found a nice guy or a nice lady. But that person doesn't have a vibrant faith in Christ. And I've watched them. And over time, that person who seemed to be a godly, Christ-loving soul is living with someone out of wedlock. They're out of church. And the beautiful things that God had for them to accomplish in this life, for the kingdom expansion He planned to use them for, are suddenly thwarted. But, but even more than that, it may prove that their soul never knew Him at all. If there are others ahead of Christ in your heart, you need to be afraid of hell. That's how hard this word Jesus preaches is. If anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's a hard word. It's a hard word. We're going to keep going. But I want you to think of this. Who is your everything? And I, I don't mean, you know, the card you sent to your wife on your anniversary. I, I'm talking, who is your everything? And if it's not Christ, you need to repent this morning. We'll talk about what that means. If, if you've not heard that word before, doesn't understand it, don't understand it. We'll talk about what it means here in a little bit. But word picture number two. The first one is discipleship, is hating all in comparison to Christ. The second one in verse 27, discipleship is living as if we were dead. Discipleship is living as if we were dead. So read with me again, verse 27. It says this, Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The word cross has taken on such an iconic picture of the Christian faith. Everything from us hanging across here to people wearing a necklace to tattoos to, to whatever the symbol might be. I, I'm drawn to think of the many uh, rap stars who are not, not a, a Christian, even claiming to be a Christ, who, who have this giant gold chain and yet every song is full of obscenity and sexual perversion. The cross has lost its punch. But we need to remember what the cross was. The cross was the instrument of execution. And it wasn't the instrument of execution for citizens. 
The cross was the instrument of execution for someone you wanted to publicly humiliate. You wanted to torture publicly as they were executing. The cross was repellent to people. Romans that used the cross as a form of execution tended to not even say the word in public. That's how bad it was. And Jesus says, I call you to take it up. That was the first step in the execution was you carrying your own cross to the public place where you would be stripped naked, hung on there with nails or ropes after a beating and allowed to suffocate publicly. He says, start that journey. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus says this over and over throughout his ministry. And I think we've lost the punch of that. The second word picture Jesus gives is not just hate everything in comparison to me, is die. It's death. The Christian life is death to everything that you were. Jesus put it like this. The last, the one who's lost everything, that's the one that will be first. Those who are first, those who get what they want, they will end up being last. In other words, they'll be cast off to that place called hell. Uh, some of you know I, I love literature. I love to read my, my favorite stories are the myths written by the Inkling Circle, Tolkien, Lewis, Chesterton, all the others. And in his prequel to, to the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Tolkien writes this story called The Hobbit. And The Hobbit kind of sets everything up. But, but a hobbit is this, it's a halfling. It, it's a short person. And the hobbits are, are boring. They farm. They cook. They eat six times a day. And they live peaceful, quiet lives, never going on an adventure. And, and a wizard comes by to one of these hobbits, and he says, I have a journey for you, an adventure. And the poor hobbit says, you're, you're crazy, I want nothing to do with this. These, those are for the hobbits across the river, is how he actually phrases it. And this wizard knows there's something inside of him, something bigger and greater than he can even imagine. So he scribes a mark on the door. And that night, 12 dwarves show up. Eat all his food. And, and they tell him of all these stories of glory far, far away and of adventure and life. And he is enraptured. He, he thinks maybe for that moment he can become part of that. Maybe he could go on an adventure because it sounds really, really good. And then they tell him, but those were days gone by. That was a long, long time ago. Now, their kingdom is ruled by an evil dragon who's killed all but just a handful of the dwarf people. And they need his help. They need a burglar. Someone little who can sneak in. <laughs> I want no part of this. But somehow through the prodding of the wizard and, and through a little bit of hastiness, he decides to go on this adventure with the dwarves. He signs a contract with them. And, and I think this contract gets to the heart of what we are signing on to when we place our faith in Christ and we repent and we turn. It says this, the final point of the contract. Adventure undertaken entirely at the burglar's own risk. Present company shall not be liable for injuries inflicted or sustained as a consequence thereof, including but not limited to laceration, evisceration, and certainly incineration. And the little hobbit signs on. And all through the rest of the book, there's these echoes of, I remember what it was like before. And he longs for it. This adventure changes him. This is what we're signing on to when we come to Christ. We're signing away all rights to ourselves. Should Christ call you to do something crazy? Go to the other side of the world? 
That's what we do. I think of my dear friends, Aaron and Joanna. They've, they've just come back. Their daughter has graduated high school and she's starting college this fall, so they're, they're back for the moment. Some of you got to meet them uh, a couple years ago. But Aaron was a concert cellist. He, he was first chair in the Little Rock Orchestra. He played beautifully. Uh, you, you could just listen to him. And there, there was a life that came out of that instrument. His wife was also a cellist. That's how they met. She was, she was not a concert cellist, but taught cello. Had a wonderful life. And God called this cellist to go across this globe and translate the Scripture into a language that had never been translated before so that Christians could read God's Word in their language and understand and follow Him. He moved his family, sold his house, sold his furniture. Got to meet him in Texas when he was getting his second master's degree. And they've moved to the Solomon Islands about the last 11 years. They live in a grass hut about half the time. They, they have a, a more typical house uh, in, in the main village. But when they're out in the islands, they're living in a hut off solar panels. To say off the grid is an understatement of the year. Um, they have the one refrigerator on the island. And it's a little college dorm refrigerator. They have six kids. Picture that, moms and dads. Excuse me, five kids. But, but still, picture that one. Living off a dorm room refrigerator with five kids. His, his commute to work is in a canoe, which took him almost a year to figure out how to, it's one of those little tiny skinny canoes. I mean, he, he, they gave up all joyfully because Jesus was better. They live as dead for Jesus Christ. So the first word picture Hating all in comparison to Christ. The second one, living as if you were dead. And the third, discipleship will cost you everything. Read verses 28 through 30 with me one more time. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. The third picture, discipleship will cost you everything. This really, I think, is talking almost more about finances. It's, it, Jesus gives this picture of a man. He's needing to build a tower. He doesn't tell us what kind. He, he's going to build a building. And obviously, if we were to build a building, we would figure out what's it going to cost. When we went to build this building, uh, we originally didn't want to build this building. Some of y'all who've been here for a while remember. We wanted to build one over there kind of like right as you drive in, kind of around that curve. The architect drew it. It was beautiful. Still is. We still have the plans. And, and, and I mean, it was a gorgeous building. And we were excited about it. It was going to be this beautiful place for worship. Amazing two-story kids building. And then we got a bid. <laughs> it was only about five times what the architect thought it was going to cost. And um, about ten times what we could pay. It was huge. And so guess what we did? We didn't build that building. Now we may and someday, we, we still have the plans for it. It's still, it's still master planned out and all that. But we built a building we knew we could pay for. In the same way, my wife and I, we bought a house a year and a half ago. What we wanted to do was go out and buy some land and build a home on it. And we started adding up numbers and we realized this, this isn't going to happen. Jesus says, count up the cost. Uh, one of the things that I have learned is that sometimes long, slow work with a friend, a co-worker, when we're sharing the Gospel, it's often much, much more fruitful than standing on a street corner or having a big event and offering pizza to anybody who will come hear the gospel. It's not that 
Those things are necessarily wrong. But we need to tell someone this is what it means to follow Christ. It costs you everything. And yet, ironically, it it costs you nothing at the same time. This is not a picture that you need to work hard and pull up your bootstraps and somehow get yourself acceptable before Christ to come to His heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. What He is saying is you renounce, you turn away from all that you were, all that you thought, all that you believed, all that you held dear, and you embrace Jesus Christ. It's not a work on your part. It's an allegiance on your part. I, I heard an um, Australian pastor this week uh, listening to him. Amazingly wise gentleman. One of the words he used, and, and he said he'd begun to use to help people understand what it means to trust Christ, to, to believe in Christ, to place your faith in Christ, to repent of your sins, is it's a changing of allegiance. It's a changing from anything, whatever your allegiance might be to yourself, your family, your job, your career, your finances, your popularity, your identity. And it's a rejecting of that allegiance and aligning all with Jesus Christ. Think of a lady I, I heard in an interview. Her... Uh, book is listed there in your sermon notes. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She wrote a book, uh, it's, it's more of a memoir, called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And, and today, if you meet her, she's a gracious, kind, friendly pastor's wife, several kids. She homeschools her kiddos. But her life and career started much different. She was a political extreme liberal. She was a feminist. She was a scholar of lesbian thought at Berkeley. She was a tenured professor. So a brilliant woman, PhD. She had everything she wanted, and she loved nothing more than destroying the countenance of Christians who came into her classes. And in her own words, making them feel like a fool. However, her next door neighbor was a Christian. This man, they were mowing yards, waving as they came in, began to befriend Rosaria. He and his wife began to love her, and they opened their home to her. And for a long period of time, years, she was awakened to the gospel by Jesus. And she placed her faith and trust in him. But for Rosaria, this didn't mean a simple change in values or adding worship to her weekly schedule. This meant a loss of everything. It meant she lost her job because she no longer believed in what she used to teach. She lost her friends and connections of the LGBT community. She lost her longtime relationship with her girlfriend. During one worship service, she encountered what we might call a typical or a normal Christian, but is far from that according to the Scriptures. After hearing her stories and, and frankly some petty complaints about how hard life was, she made this statement. I gave up my girlfriend to follow Jesus. What did you give up? That's a powerful statement. I, I want you to think about that. She left everything she had to follow Christ. That's what it cost her. And it's easy to see in someone who had to quite literally quit her job, move out of her home. But the call of Christ to every single one of us is to count up the cost and choose Christ. I want to read you another scripture. This is out of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3, verse 18. It says this. Revelation 3, 18. For, I say, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. That's often the attitude of American Christians today. 
Here's Jesus' assessment. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. What is the solution? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. And he says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous, passionate, in other words, for Christ and repent. Turn away from it all. That, that scripture confused me so much as a child when I had read it first. Because how could someone who's wretched, poor, naked, blind buy gold? But that is the exact point. They can't. It's only by the work of Christ. But it takes us recognizing we are out of resources. Yes, we count up the cost, and the cost is everything. But if somebody walked up to me today and says, you give me everything in your wallet. Everything you've got. Your whole bank account. I'm going to clean it out. For this home, you know what I'd do? Man, I'd hand over that wallet. Because you know what's in my wallet right now? I don't even look. Seven bucks. And my bank account, boy, it's a whole lot less than a house. I can tell you that. Yeah, it costs us everything. It costs us nothing. I mean, that's nothing. What Christ offers is Himself. Relationship with the Creator God. That's what He's bidding you to come and buy with your nothing. Discipleship costs you everything. But is absolutely worth the cost. Because the true cost was paid by Jesus Christ on that cross when He died for our sins and then rose again. Alright, number four. Well, discipleship will cost you everything. Rejecting Jesus Christ will cost you even more. Look at me at verse 31 and 32. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war? In other words, he's being attacked. He, he's, he's on the hometown. The king has come to attack him. Will not sit down and first deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, I never served in the military as I spoke. I know many of you have. We've got many retired military guys and former, former um, military folks, many veterans here, and I'm grateful for you all. And I'm sure there's strategy out there, and there might be a way to beat an army twice your size. I... I, I but let me tell you, from, from my strategy in reading this text here, if that guy's got 20,000 and I've got 10,000, I'm going to lose. Y'all get the picture of what Jesus is saying here? This is not a hopeful battle. This is not the fight you want to fight because you're going to lose. What Jesus is saying to you, and, and particularly, I want to say to you, if you're still considering the claims of Christ, if you have not trusted Jesus, this is the call. Yes, discipleship costs you everything. But rejecting Christ and His discipleship costs you even more. It costs you your eternal soul. And nothing on this earth is worth that. I think, again, back to World War II. One of the great tragedies of the war in the Pacific was the senseless loss of life of Japan. There came a point when they knew they had not had no hope of winning the war. They, they had lost. But the emperor, the generals, refused to give up. So they kept sending wave and wave of soldiers out. They, they sent the kamikazes, suicidal warriors, to attempt. 
They would not give up the islands. And there were statements made that the United States would have to go island to island and every inch of the soil of Japan before they would surrender. Japanese soldiers on the islands would often fight to the death, never allowing themselves to be captured, to, to live, to go on, to have a life after this war. But they would stay staked out in their holes and fight and fight and fight until they were killed. Even when the battle was already lost. Remember back to me, the first atomic explosion, even after that, the Japanese would not surrender. They were in a feudal conflict. They would lose. But they wouldn't surrender. And let me tell you, this is the picture. This is what Jesus is saying to you. If you have refused in your heart, you've said, no, I can do it on my own. No, I'm good. No, there's another way. Jesus is saying to you, friend, there is no other way. You are fighting a fight which cannot be won. Seek terms of peace and Christ offers it freely. He offers His very self. Place your faith in Him. Trust Him. That's the hope. So the last thing. Number five. Bad discipleship is worthless, irritating, and even disgusting. Read verse 34 and 35 with me. Salt is good. <clears throat> Excuse me. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. This at first is kind of a little bit confusing, but let me, let me give you a little just background in the history. Um, the people of Israel were very near to the place called the Dead Sea. Um, the Dead Sea was the source of their salt. And many of you, I'm sure, who, who love to cook or, or have used cosmetic-y things know that the minerals of the Dead Sea are, are extremely helpful. It's, it's an amazingly nurturing, helpful salt. The mud from around there is used for all sorts of treatments. People go there um, because of the air. There's so much salt in the air that it's actually very helpful and it can help lung uh, troubles. But they would get salt that had dried out on the banks and, or, or a portion of the sea that had dried out. And so it had salt, but it also had a lot of these minerals in there. Because obviously, you know, sometimes their storage mechanisms were not quite what we are. The salt part would be dissolved by the humidity of the air. This is a pretty humid region. And, and it would leach out. And so the salt part would be gone, leaving all those minerals. And suddenly you had salt that was no longer salty. It was just a bunch of minerals and, and would not taste good. And, and I and most, most folks who have studied this passage think this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. So suddenly you have salt that, that's no use anymore. It's not salty. It's just got all these minerals in it. And so if this preserving quality, this flavor for quality is gone, what good is it? But Jesus says it's even worse than that. Not only is it not useful anymore, if you just went to toss it out and you threw it on your wife's flowers, it's going to kill all the flowers because there's enough salt left. And it's going to go bad. And you've got to remember, these are farmers. They've got manure piles. They've got compost piles. If you throw it out there, well, then it's going to affect next year's crops. You can't do anything with this stuff. Not only is it no good to cook with, it's no good to preserve with, you can't even just throw it out right. You've got to you know, use special trash that's you know, going to go to whatever landfill or whatever they used at that time. This, this can't even just be tossed out. It is bad. It's dangerous. It's corrupting. It could cause problems. And what I want us to see today is a false discipleship or a bad discipleship. It's not just a little thing. It's dangerous. It's going to corrupt. It's going to kill. So let me tell you exactly what I mean by a false discipleship. There are things that have cropped into or creeped into American Christianity that are the plague 
of our modern day churches. The, the first one, the, the glaring one, is, is the prosperity gospel that says everything is good and happy when you follow Jesus. No, Jesus says take up your cross. This even creeps into our churches. Right? Not just those folks out there that might be preaching the, the obvious, the TV preachers and the, you know, the wild hair. And We're not just talking that. We're talking this this false teaching that suddenly you become a Christian and everything's easy. That secret sin that you thought would just go away hasn't gone away. And you prayed and asked Jesus and it doesn't. Christ's call is to death. It's to sacrifice. It's to hard work. I love hearing stories and testimonies of, of Christians who've come to faith and maybe they were involved in drugs or alcohol, or something like that. And I mean, they, they trust Christ, and boom, they've never had another drink since. That's an awesome story. Praise God for that. That's not reality most of the time. And for us to think we can manufacture that, and that's all there is to Christianity, it's a falsehood. We need to follow Christ daily. Those sins, we have to fight against them. It's a false hope. But we're also seeing people who are preaching. And there's no call to abandon sin. They call people to trust Christ, but not repent. Jesus came preaching the gospel, saying repent and believe. It's both. If there's a gospel that doesn't call you to repent and turn from your sins, this is not a true gospel. And if your daily life involves you know, praising Jesus and singing and singing, and then you don't care about sin in your life, you've got into a false way of following Christ. That's not the truth. There's another way that I, I think maybe more of us are guilty of than any others. And it's a silent Christianity. Christianity says... Trusted Jesus, praise God, I'm saved. I am fighting sin, and I mean, it's, everything's good. But you are silence. There is silence when it comes to witnessing to your neighbor, your coworker, your friend, your family member. Christians are not silent. If you think you can have Christianity and not be a witness, you don't understand Christianity. This is not a silent gospel. The harboring of secret sins, independence from a church, an easy, carefree life. But perhaps most dangerous of all is laziness. We live in a culture that is lazy. That fears hard work. The reality to following Christ, it is beating down sin in our lives under the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's grace, living in His life, but it is hard work. That's what repentance is. It is fighting sin. And that's the call of Christ. Let me finish up with one scripture. Galatians 5, 19-21 says this. Galatians 5. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now I've heard this before, I'm sure. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife. That seems out of step with those others, doesn't it? Jealousy. How many of us don't suffer from jealousy? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies. And things like these. And pay attention to this last statement. I warn you, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, and I hope you are brothers and sisters, but if you don't repent of the secret pornography, you're going to go to hell. Not by your works, but because you've never really trusted Christ. Students, if all you live for is yourself, you're not saved. You're going to hell. 
This is the warning. This is the tenure of this passage. It's hard. It's an in-your-face, blunt, two-by-four over the head, size nine to the backside passage. This passage says repent. It is turning from who you were to Christ. It is rejecting your sin and fighting against it. Everything that you thought before and those things you want to hold on on and not accept what Jesus Christ says in His Word. It's saying, I know this is how I think and this is makes sense and I reject it anyway to Christ and embrace what He says in His Word. This is a hard passage. But the beauty is, the reward is not just following. It's following Christ. It's the good Jesus who died for your sins and rose again and is alive today and walks with you as Savior, as friend. That's the call today. Repent and believe. Let's pray. Father, Lord, this, this is a heavy, hard passage. and I pray that You would help us not to be beat down, but Lord, to at the same time feel the weight of sin and not want this weight to cast it aside. God, I pray that the effect of Your Word would not be the, the, the stench of rejection, but the beautiful incense, the, the, the beautiful smell of embracing Christ and freedom and joy and love and help in Him. Jesus, may we embrace You. May our allegiance change from ourselves and everything that entails to You, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We pray praise you that you died for our sins you lived the perfect righteous life that we could not but god may we do what you call us to do and repent and we turn away and turn to you christ lord i pray for any of those who do not know you and maybe this made sense for the first time maybe the compelling vision you give of what a disciple is has finally appealed that, that a, a wimpy, lifeless gospel could not. Jesus, may we embrace you. I pray for friends who don't know you, that they would come to know you, that they would place their faith in you and repent today. And Lord, for those of us who do, that we would truly repent of that sin that has been nagging and lingering for so long. Pray that you would make our congregation, make us holy. Lord, we are a congregation of hypocrites. Forgive us and make us holy. Make us repenters, God, please. In Jesus, your name we pray. Amen.